0: The Holy Gospel is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. This will serve as the basis for our meditation this evening. Jesus told this parable to certain people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they looked down on others. Two men went up to the temple courts to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. However, the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Without fanfare or fuss, a German monk named Martin walked through the crowd with a rolled up broadsheet under his arm. No one really noticed as he attached it to the front door of The All Saints Church, I mean, it was typical for university professors and students and other people to to post notices or other things on the door. But when the monk walked away, people looked to see what he had posted. A broadsheet with 95 statements written in Latin for an academic debate over the practice of indulgences. A popular pay for forgiveness practice peddled by the church. But it's really his first statement, his first thesis that really got to the heart of of the matter. when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, "Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance. I've heard that word a lot tonight. Repentance, if you're not sure what the word means, it means to turn away from your sins in sorrow and trust in God's forgiveness. Why would Luther say that Jesus wants the life of every believer, in fact, the entire life of every believer, to be one of repentance? Why would we want our lives to be a life of repentance? Help us understand. We go back to a story that Jesus told told it to a group of people, certain people who were trusted in themselves, trusted that they were righteous, and they looked down on others. So Jesus told them a very basic story that would have been familiar to all of them. Two men went to church one day. Both went there to pray. Both were sinners desperately in need of a Savior, but only one left the church declared forgiven by God. Now, one of the men was a Pharisee, well-respected among God's people. He was well-respected as a follower of the true God. He would be a really great active member of a congregation. He zealously followed the teachings of the law. He zealously followed the instruction of the rabbis. He carefully followed the kosher laws. He didn't want to mess up the food that he ate. He wanted to make sure every bite that entered his mouth was clean. He avoided any appearance of work on the Sabbath. He knew his Old Testament forward and back. He fasted twice a week. He always gave a tenth of what he received, even down to his box of Wheaties. He gave a tenth of that to every, to back to God. He prayed to the Lord often. He studied the Torah. By all appearances, this man was a righteous follower of Yahweh. But appearances can be deceiving all his outward piety the man was nothing more than a whitewashed tomb beautiful and clean on the outside dead and decaying on the inside what appeared to be holiness was nothing more than a cover for the deadly self-righteousness he harbored in his heart he was a sinner like everyone else in in church that day, but he felt no need to admit or repent of his sin. After all, he was doing what was right in God's sight, even going beyond what the rabbis commanded. And then this man, he went to church just to make sure God knew how holy and faithful he was. When he walked into the temple, when he walked into church, he found the most prominent possible spot he could find. He stood up tall, he lifted his hands up to God, up to the heavens, his eyes looking up to the heavens, and then he told God all about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector in the corner. You know, I I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Take a look, God. When you see believer in the dictionary, it's a picture of me. When you see a faithful follower, That's me. What a righteous man he was. In his own eyes. Yes, Lord, I've been pretty good. I haven't robbed or swindled anyone, even if I haven't always been honest with my numbers. I haven't been unjust to anyone, unlike the unrighteous I faithfully walked in your path. I haven't had an affair with anyone, even if I have allowed my eye to wander every once in a while. At least I'm not like the robber. Or the unrighteous. Or the adulterer. Especially not like that tax collector hiding back there in the corner. He doesn't even deserve to set foot in this temple among the holy. After all that he has done to your people. And Lord, by the way, just so you're sure that, about how faithful and righteous and pious I am, don't forget that I willingly Don't eat twice a week. Don't forget that I give up a full tenth of everything I earn and everything I receive. I mean, that has to mean something to you, God, right? Not an ounce of humility could be found in the man's heart. Man didn't really come to church to pray that day. He came to boast about himself, to tell God how great he was. He was a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, like everyone in church that day, but he wasn't about to turn away from what God wanted him to turn away from, his own self-righteousness. He saw no need for a Savior because he was his own Savior. That man left church that day justified in his own eyes, but not in God's. The other man was a tax collector. Don't think IRS agent. Not that. Think more, uh, CD swindler, kind of the definition, the very definition of corruption. I mean, the Roman government would, would hire locals who maybe were in financial straits or who. Who weren't the most honest people would hire them to to collect taxes among the people. As a reward to them, these tax collectors could go and uh, charge people whatever they wanted, get the taxes to the Romans, and keep everything else. And then there were some higher ranking. There was kind of a, a pyramid scheme, so the higher ranking tax collectors would get their cut too. Obviously, there's a lot of room there for corruption. But if someone and if someone didn't pay their taxes, I mean, they could legally use Violent force to take away your last cent. Tax collectors were hated by everyone, especially their own people. I mean, they were considered traitors. They were, people would, would go pay their taxes and spit on them. People would curse them. They would sometimes have to go to their, to their tax collection booths in hiding, just going through the crowds because people hated them so much. A tax collector's only friends were usually the lowlifes and outcasts of society. Criminals prostitutes, thieves, maybe others, sinners, whatever that might mean. At the same time, they were often keenly aware of their own guilt, what their actions and their choices were doing. And they were keenly aware in their heart of hearts, in those, in those unguarded moments of the eternal judgment that awaited them. I mean, what tax collectors could possibly stand before God and survive his holy judgment? And surely that guilt robbed them of sleep, of peace, and of hope. Now this tax collector went to church that day, he didn't want to draw any attention to himself, and so he tried to quietly slip into the darkest, farthest back corner of church as he could get, but it really didn't help that the Pharisee pointed him out there. But the man stood there in the shadows, and he would not even lift his eyes up to the heavens. How can I possibly look to heaven when I deserve to fall into the depths of hell? Man stared at the floor. He beat his chest. If he could have covered himself in the rough burlap material of sackcloth and, and, and sat there and poured ashes over his head as a sign of sorrow, which was common in their culture, he would have done so. Before the holy God, that's all he was. Dust and ashes. Nothing more. Nothing more. One day he would return to the dust in death because his sins so separated him from God. And so there he stood in the shadows, head down, beating his chest. The gaping maw of hell is opening wide before him. But rather than plunge into despair, the tax collector cries out the only thing he can God be merciful to me, a sinner. The man recalled the words of King David when he was confronted with his own guilt. You know that time when David managed to crash through all ten commandments in a matter of hours. What did David pray to the Lord? We sang a version of that earlier, "Be gracious to me, God, according to your mercy, erase my acts of rebellion according to the greatness of your compassion. Scrub me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin." And that's just the first two verses. The only way that tax collector was going to receive forgiveness would be through God's mercy. There was nothing he could offer, no pride he could take in himself, no holy living or effort in God's sight that could gain him anything. He was dust and ashes before God and so he took that great big burden of guilt and he dumped it at the feet of his Savior. Just took it off of his shoulders and threw it at him. And you know what? Jesus didn't say, sorry, this isn't mine. You need to take this back. There's no possible way that that tax collector could hold on to any, any of that any longer, but he knew that God could do something about it. And that's exactly what God did. The man left church that day declared forgiven in God's sight. My friends, you came to church tonight to worship. It's Ash Wednesday. It's what we do. But whether you realize it or not, you also came desperately in need of a Savior. So will you leave this place filled with a self-righteousness that's like that Pharisee or humbled like the tax collector? What guilt will you leave behind, leave at the cross that you might live in God's forgiveness or does your pride blind you to your need for forgiveness? Now I'm sure every one of us here would be quick to side with the tax collector. That's We're like, of course, of course, I'm going to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That comes off easy off the tongue. There's not much to say there, but in reality, for as easy as it is to say, it is hard to actually admit. Deep down, we all know that there is a Pharisee living inside each of us. Self-righteousness comes all too easily to us as Christians. None of us wants to admit that there are times... When you really want to remind God of how faithful you are and even as you look down on other people around you. By nature, you and I are much more inclined to stand front and center proclaiming, oh God, look at how faithful I have been. Look at how hard I have worked for you when no one else would get the job done. Look at how willing I've been to sacrifice my time, my talents, my money for you, God. Look at that. That's got to mean something to you, Lord. It's got to count for something. I'm here after all, right? At least I'm not a false teacher or, you know, one of those sinners that we all hear about out here somewhere outside the walls of our church. Like those other people I know who claim to be Christian, but I'm not so sure. How hypocritical. When you come to church, do you come to partake of God's grace and mercy, his compassionate forgiveness for you, or do you come to do your duty because that's just what Christians do? Have you ever prejudged someone as you walked in the door with them? Do you ever fail to take someone's words and actions in the kindest possible way and instead cut them down in front of their face or behind their back? Do you ever fail to see who you really are as I see who I really am? A sinner headed for hell, do you think you're doing all right in God's sight because you're so faithful? It's easy to pat ourselves on the back. Oh, how that Pharisee inside of us just loves to boast before the Lord. But my friends, it's Ash Wednesday. Take a long, hard look at God's holy expectations and what do you see? You see how far you've fallen short of his holiness. You realize that you are nothing more than a whitewashed tomb, at best, dust and ashes. What then? What else can you do than despair of your misguided efforts to please please God? What else can you do than cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That's where a life of repentance starts. But it doesn't end with us plunging into the depths of hell. You see, repentance ends in the open arms of Jesus. It ends at the foot of the cross where you dump all that guilt that you've been holding onto, all that guilt you've been hiding, and all that weakness you failed to admit, and all that death that you deserve. Jesus doesn't want you to cover it up or ignore it or deny your sin or, or, or just uh, dismiss it. He wants you to daily dump it on Him in repentance. You see, Jesus humbled himself to exalt you with his forgiveness and grace. Jesus picked up that great big load of guilt that you dropped at his feet, all that weakness, all that death, all that garbage, and he carried it to the cross. And that, that is where repentance ends. It ends in Jesus. Jesus, who took your deserved punishment Jesus, who endured your deserved death. Jesus, who takes the rough sackcloth and ashes of your morning and replaces them with the white garment of His holiness and His mercy. And then we repeat it day after day. Every morning you look in the mirror of God's holy law. You see the ugliness of your sins and then you take your sins and dump them again at the foot of the cross. From that cross then you go into your day confident and joyful in the forgiveness you have in your one and only Savior Jesus. And then when you go to bed at night because you know you've sinned, you go back to the cross, you dump all the sins there again and you leave your sin with Jesus and you get some rest. And it starts all over the next day. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. That's what Luther meant when he spoke about how Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You daily go back to your baptism, drown that sinful nature again, and rise anew with your Savior, going into the day confident and joyful in His grace. And then you go back to your baptism again and drown that sinful nature again. You recall how Jesus has cleansed you, how Jesus has made you holy in Jesus. You are innocent in Jesus. You are forgiven in Jesus. You no longer need, you have no need, no no reason to boast in yourself. But rather, here, you live a life of repentance. You go back to the cross day after day after day. You are his child. You can leave church tonight justified in God's sight, declared not guilty, declared forgiven. Why? Our God has shown you mercy and he remembers your sins no more. Amen.